Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Sid the Jewel Vanderpool. Sid was one of Canada's most accomplished boxers with an outstanding 35 wins in 39 fights over a 13-year professional career, 23 of those wins by knockout. He was in 2002 ranked number one in the world by the IBF, the International Boxing Federation. Sid is also an esteemed member of the legendary Vanderpool fighting family. Keen listeners to this podcast will recall that Sid's big brother Fitz, the whip Vanderpool, joined me a few months ago. Sid was inducted into the Ontario Boxing Hall of Fame in 2020, and today is an elite trainer who started the careers of several pro boxers, including Jessica, the Cobra, Kamara, Natasha, the Nightmare, Spence, and Dangerous, Denton Daly. Sid knows great nicknames. Sid has also been equally successful as an entrepreneur, the proud owner of two locations of SidFit Health and Training Centers, and recently was named to the top 30 list of entrepreneurs disrupting their industries. Welcome, Sid, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Hello, Andrew. Uh, so glad to be here with you. Uh, we finally make this happen. And yeah, I'm uh, right now I'm in Kitchener, Ontario. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing great. Excellent. Well, if I may, I want to ask, how is your family? Family is good. Everybody's healthy. Uh, you know, we're, we, we're getting together. It's summertime, so we're getting together and uh, spending some time together. And uh, it's always fun to just catch up and reminisce and, uh, you know, just share stories together as a family. And tell us about your immediate family, because if I'm not mistaken, you've got a, a few still on the payroll, as they say. I, yes, I do. I do. So my oldest just graduated. Uh, she's going to be 23 soon. And she just graduated from Guelph Humber Media Communications. Uh, loves music. So if there's anybody here listening that's in the music industry, you know, my daughter's looking for a job because she loves Toronto. And uh, my uh, middle child, uh, Destiny, is uh, she's doing great. Uh, she's a nanny right now and uh, looking to be a budding entrepreneur herself. And then my youngest is uh, Jalen, and, um, you know, he's going into grade 12. So, you know, doing just fine. They're all doing great. Excellent. Well, that's the best thing to hear. Let's please go all the way back. Get the Sid Vanderpool story. Born September 23rd, 1972 in Kitchener. You are the fifth and youngest of five sons. Now, Sid, urban legend has it when your dad, John, brought the family to Canada from Trinidad, the Jackson Five were the biggest thing in entertainment. So he said, they got five boys, I got five boys, and so he went out and bought you all instruments. How did that all work out? So true, so true. Yeah, the Jackson Five was, everybody was like just, you know, enamored with them and their talents. And my dad was like, okay, I think I've got five talented boys and um, let's get those some instruments. So again, drums, trumpet, guitar, uh, you know, you name it, we had it. And he, he would put us down in the basement and uh, he'd say, all right, guys, let's go start playing. And we did play uh, horribly. And uh, I, I'm so surprised that my mom, you know, didn't shut it down a lot sooner because listening to those drums and the trumpet must have been, 
you know, uh, not the most pleasant thing. And so, you know, after a while, uh, I guess he realized that we were not very good at playing without instruction. So he thought, you know, let's try something else. Yeah, your dad was a noted runner back in Trinidad, and he liked watching boxing on TV. So he decided instead to train the boys to box in a makeshift gym in the family's carport of your Morrison Road home in Kitchener's Chicopee neighborhood. There's a great photo out there on the metaverse of your dad and the five boys all lined up, oldest to youngest, all together going for a small 5K before school training run. Sid, what do you remember about those early days training at home alongside your brothers? Yeah, and, you know, as you said that, I was, I was picturing the black and white photo of us, uh, you know, running down Morrison Road. That's It is. It's 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 a legendary. But I just remember, I, I do remember, um, again, I was the youngest, and so probably, you know, when that picture was taken, like maybe I was, you know, six and a half, seven years old, if that. And my dad just believed in fitness and in health and in doing things together as a family. We would, that's what we did. Uh, you know, besides boxing, you know, we would go on these family fun runs. Uh, you know, we go to these different, uh, cities and they would have these runs, ba- you know, based on age class. And of course we were competitive, you know, we'd always try and get, you know, the, the, the red ribbon for the gold and whatnot. But, um, you know, we just spent time together as a family being active and, uh, a lot of it was outside. So it was great times. Now, one night in Toronto, watching one of your older brothers fight, Sid, at the time you were about six and a half years old, what happened? You know, my brother, one of my brothers, or maybe even two of my brothers were fighting that night. And so we were uh, in Toronto and I'm just in the back room and I'm just, I just take it all in. And back then people were allowed to smoke indoors and they would smoke cigars. And when you got to these places, just old guys, you know, it's the boys club. There are all these guys and they're smoking cigars and they come out to watch the fights. And uh, so I'm in the back room and I'm just taking it all in. My brother, you know, people are back there getting warmed up. And the promoter, uh, Vince Bagnetto, came back. He opened the door up. And as he opened the door, the smoke came into the back room. And, you know, I was sitting there with, oh, look at that. And uh, he, he looks and he goes, hey, does anybody have anyone else that can fight tonight? I don't have enough fights. And uh, I just remember my dad, you know, just looking at me and he goes, points his finger, he goes, he'll fight. And I kind of look up and I'm like, thinking to myself, I will, right? Because I'm just there to watch. And uh, Vince is like, okay, well, he'll be on, you know, fifth bout. So let's get him ready. And uh, my dad went and got my brother's, you know, trunks and put them on me. And they hung down to like my ankles. And I put these gloves on. And next thing I know, I'm walking out into the smoke-filled room with all these people. And I walk up to the stairs. And I climb those stairs. And I get the ropes and I look across and there's this boy and he's big. And I'm like, man, that kid's big. And I look at him and I look at my dad. I'm like, okay, either I'm going to fight that boy or I'm going to fight my dad. I think I'm going to pick the kid. So I just went in there and I just started throwing punches. And uh, at the end of the fight, you know, they raised my hand in victory. And my dad was so happy. I remember, I'll never forget because he also bought me an extra trophy um, that I have in my office. And it says, you know, Sid Vanderpool wins his first fight at six and a half years old and um, you know, he's pretty excited that he now had another one, you know, another another one to join the team. Well, you certainly are different times. Uh, you're of the same vintage as me. We both have kids around the same age. I'm likely today you'd see a six and a nine-year-old uh, duking it out. You were into boxing now, Sid, and you became Canadian national champion. You ended up finishing second in the Olympic trials, didn't want to wait for the next Olympic cycle four years later. So after compiling an amateur record of 90 wins and only 11 losses, 
You went pro at 19 years of age, moved to Brockton, Massachusetts to train. Was that a huge shock for you to make such a big move as a young adult? Yeah, absolutely. But at the time, it wasn't. At the time, I was like, okay, I have this goal, I have this dream. And in order to pursue that dream to its best, most opportunities are in the U.S., so that's where I need to go. So that's, you know, what uh, my brother Keith and I did. And uh, we ended up, uh, again, my idol coming up in boxing. I love Marvelous Marvin Hagler. He was my guy. I'm like, okay, wherever Marvelous Marvin Hagler was, that's where I want to be. And his coaches and managers were Goody Goody and Pat Petronelli, and they were from Brockton, Massachusetts. So I, you know, I sent them video. They had videos back in the day, and I sent them videos. And they watched my videos, and they said, yeah, come on down. So I went there to basically audition and they liked what they saw and they invited me back and, you know, I just packed up my stuff in my brother's car and, uh, yeah, packed up the car we drove across the border and he left me. He just left me there. (laughs) Talk about learning on the job. (laughs) Right? 19 years old. It was a big culture shock, uh, coming from Kitchener, Ontario, which is very small, uh, going to Brockton, Massachusetts. And at the time, Brockton, Massachusetts, what they were doing is they were allowing any of the other states could transfer their welfare cases to Brockton. They would take them in and all the other states did that. And so we have a high propensity of people on welfare. There's also a lot of crime um, and poverty. You know, walking to the gym, you know, I would see blood stain on the sidewalks. I'd never seen blood stain on a sidewalk before, you know, but this was kind of a common thing. And um, you know, I remember my first apartment that I had there that my managers put me in, it was like a triplex and I was up on the third floor. So I was on the third floor and I just remember the, the guy in the, the bottom level, uh, there were people coming to visit him nonstop all the time. People would just drive up, you know, they come and visit for a little bit, then they leave. And, and I was like, man, this guy is so popular. And I later came to find out, well, he was a drug dealer. He was, you know, dealing out of the house. And so when I, when I told my, my trainer, Goody, about Goldie, hey, listen, this guy, like, he's, he's like, oh, Sid, we got to get you out of there. I don't think that's the place. <laughs> that's how naive I was, right? I didn't know he was like that. And uh, so he moved me on to another place and he'd, he'd come and pick me up and drop me off uh, from the gym. Uh, <laughs> what a start. Now, Sid, you trained primarily in the in the United States, not only in Brockton, Massachusetts, but also Erie, Pennsylvania. And in fact, about 90% of your fights took place in the U.S. Why did you not stay to train and fight in Canada? Again, uh, it's getting better now, much better now. But back then in, you know, the uh, the 2000s, most of the boxing was happening in the U.S. The, the TV, like you needed to be seen by by the U.S. promoters and by the U.S. networks. So it didn't make sense to uh, to be in Canada and not be seen when I did have the talent, the ability to perform well on the on the national stage. So that's why you know the choice was made to like let's let's go let's go where the action is, where the big fish are, and let's make a you know a big splash. And of course, if you want to be the best, you've got to train with the best. And you that's did right. train with some really world renowned boxers, including your hometown fella Lennox Lewis. Zab Judah, Hector Macho Camacho. What do you remember about training with these kind of so well-known fighters? You know, well, one thing is I learned is definitely that um, fighters, as long as you're not being against them, they are so willing to help uh, and give 
great advice. And I learned a lot from being around these fighters to ask them questions. And I, I would just watch and learn and observe. And like Hector, uh, you know, he's no longer with us, Hector Macho Camacho. Um, yeah, man, like he lived a fast life, fast cars, fast girls. Like he lived a fast life. But what I learned from him is that, you know, when I was in Erie, Pennsylvania, and he came to have a fight there, uh, he needed sparring partners. So he asked if he could use one of my sparring partners. And my, my coach, John Davenport, said, sure. And uh, so they had an open sparring day. My sparring partner was a little bit older, but he was he was a veteran. And that's why I used him. So there's, you know, the, the open sparring day happens and they asked if they could bring kids from the community to watch the sparring and, the, you know, there were TVs there. And so uh, Hector Camacho's in there and he sparred my, my sparring partner. And he's handling pretty easy because, you know, Marta Camacho is one of the best in the world. And uh, one of the kids starts laughing <laughs> because, you know, Camacho's taking him pretty late, having his way with them. And right there, Hector Camacho stops the sparring, goes over to the kid and says, hey, listen, unless you want to get in here with me, you got nothing to laugh about. And he went back to sparring. Right. And I just thought that was so great for uh, for Camacho to show his is uh, sparring partner that respect and to also just show respect, you know what I mean, for the sport. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes that gets lost. Those stories get lost and people just, because when you're a fighter, it's entertainment. You're, you you are sometimes putting on a show and you're playing playing a character. You know, a lot of people outside of the sport won't see, only, only see what's happening in the ring. They don't get to see the training and that sort of thing. So it was great for me to experience that. Well, Sid, you had... 39 fights, 35 of those were victories for you, so a lot of fights. But I want to focus on two. These were your two world title fights. One against Bernard the Executioner Hopkins in 2000, and your second was against Jeff Left Hook Lacey in 2004. What do you remember about the excitement and the experience of those two championship bouts? And let's start with the first one, 2000 against Bernard Hopkins. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Conseco Fieldhouse right here, in Indianapolis, Indiana, HBO World Championship Boxing. And now, ladies and gentlemen, 12 rounds of boxing for the IBF Middleweight Championship of the World. first, fighting out of the blue corner, wearing white and weighing in at 159 and one half pounds. His professional record, 29 bouts. 28 victories, including 18 knockouts with only one loss. Ladies and gentlemen, from Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, here is the IBF number three ranked middleweight challenger in the world, Sid, the Jewel Thunderhoof. So for me, it was the opportunity. I was already ranked, you know, top five in the world as a super middleweight. So I started off as a middleweight and I quickly outgrew that weight class. So at middleweight, the the limit is 160 pounds. You cannot weigh over 160 pounds. And at super middleweight, it's 168 pounds. So I moved up to the super middleweight division uh, very, you know, very shortly after turning pro. And that's where I was campaigning. And I was doing very well there. And like I said, ranked top five in the world. And, you know, I got this call. Uh, we got the call to fight Bernard Hopkins because he had had his opponent fall out for an HBO title fight. And they needed somebody that had a good record, that was credible, 
and that was ranked in the top 10. So, you know, it was like three weeks notice to take this fight. And I was already in camp. And, you know, I my manager were kind of like, oh, Sid, do you really want to do this? Because you're going to get a title shot at world at, at, at super middleweight. And I was like, this is why I box. I want to face the best fighters in the world on the biggest stage. And Bernard Hopkins had already been champion for like three or four years. And it was on HBO. I'm like, yes, let's take this fight. You know, we took that fight. And for me, one of the biggest challenges was making the weight that I hadn't been that weight for a long time. And, you know, he said eight pounds, but I was already 182 pounds cutting down to 168. Now I have to go all the way down to 160. Um, so we did it. We did it diligently. Like there was no problem, um, you know, get, I, I made it happen. And so I just remember, you know, the whole experience, I, I, I knew uh, I was working with a sports psychologist. And so my mind was very focused. I, I had rehearsed a lot of things in my mind. Um, I was, I was taking it all in. You know, I just remember, you know, this going to that ring and just, you know, the first two, three rounds, just feeling so confident, so ready for that moment. And Bernard Hopkins knew it too. And he was very smart. He was like, okay, this kid's got a lot of fire, a lot of energy. I'm going to just wait, 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 because this is a 12 round fight. And one of my biggest things I take away from that fight was when you're confident, you have patience. All right. So I, was very aggressive uh, because I'd never fought for a world title before. It was my first time ever. So I didn't know what to expect. So I was not very patient because I, I, I wasn't that confident I could do it. You know, I'd never been there before. And so he was he was confident that he would catch me later on. I'd get tired, which I did because, you know, losing all that weight and everything. You know, he did what he needed to do. Um, I was able to, you know, make the 12 rounds and, 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 and show really well. And uh, it was a great experience for me. Well, you did show well, as you know, going all 12 rounds. And you're braver than me, Sid. I wouldn't fight a guy with a nickname to Executioner. Executioner. <laughs> now, let's talk about your second world title fight, 2004. Jeff Lacey. Now, this was at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas on Showtime. All right, fans, here we go. 12 rounds of boxing for the vacant IBF Super Middleweight Championship of the World. <laughs> And his opponent across the ring on my right, fighting out of the red corner, this vacant world title attraction, wearing blue trunks with white trim. He is fighting out of and representing Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. He weighed in at already 167 pounds. His record stands at 35 wins, two losses, with 23 wins coming by way of knockout. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, second attempt at a world title. Please welcome the IBF number one ranked super middleweight contender introducing Sid the Jewel This was the big world. Yeah, yeah. And this was the reopening of the outdoor stadium at Caesars Palace. Like, I was a kid watching uh, Hagler. I'll never forget Hagler fighting outdoors to Caesar's Palace. Steam coming off his head, his bald head as he was out there, you know, doing his rounds. And uh, I was like, man, one day if I could ever fight outdoors Caesar's Palace. And it came. The opportunity came. Uh, I guess Jeff Lacey and I was ranked number one in the world. 
So I was ranked number one and he was ranked lower than me. It was his promoter and uh, it was hot. I remember because it was his promoter, uh, his promoter had him warming up inside Caesar's Palace in the air conditioning. And I was outside in this tent and it was boiling hot in this tent. And I'm like, I'm going to die in here. Like I'm the, like I'm the co-main event. Uh, Klitschko was the main event. Klitschko versus Darnell Williamson was the main event. I was the co-main event. And I'm like, man, if I stay in this thing, I'm going to, I won't even be able to stand for one round. Warming up. They also had a tent that was air conditioned and Emmanuel Stewart was in there with Klitschko. And I had trained with Emmanuel Stewart earlier. So we just went in and said, Hey Manny, you know, is it okay if we kind of hang out in here? And he got a big, and he's like, said, absolutely. And so we were able to um, keep cool by hanging out, um, you know, in the air conditioned tent and uh, not dehydrating and draining ourselves before, before the fight. So there's so much that goes on before you actually get in the ring to help you get ready for your performance. And that was one of those things. And Sid, you're kind of well known for after the fight, your quote, I'd rather the fight be stopped one punch too early than one punch too late. Yeah. I mean, you know, after the fight and, and I'm very, very, very aware of what's going on in the ring in the moment. I can hear, I can hear the commentators. I can hear the corner. I can hear people screaming. Um, and it doesn't distract me. It's just, I'm hypersensitive and hyper, hyper aware. And I remember, you know, listening to the commentators talking, you know, about, oh, you know, Vanderpool's coming on, you know, it looks like he's, you know, he's doing really, really well. And then, you know, when the fight got stopped, you know, I could hear them saying, Ooh, you know, the fight may have been, may have looked like it got stopped prematurely. And, uh, so I go to my corner and I come back to the center of the ring and, you know, they, they throw the mic right in your face and they're like, Hey, how do you feel about the fight being stopped? And again, in that moment, like I knew that was the end of my career because, I was not going to spend another four years trying to, to win another title. I was 32 years old. I just knew that was going to be the end of it for me. And uh, so there's a lot of emotion. And, you know, you know, for me to say, hey, I, you know, I, I'd rather that the fight be stopped one punch too soon than one punch too late was just, you know, that was not me, right? And so in that moment, a lot of people just had so much, you know, they remember that. They had so much respect for, for, for my ability to take that moment to not just, you know, be... Uh, mad or upset or you know what I mean like so this is boxing this is what happens and um, you know you, you take your lumps and you move on incredibly mature especially under all the pressure of the moment now Sid you retired in 2005 at the age of 32 you knew it was time 100% knew it was time I had had two losses in the matter of 11 and a half years I had two losses in 11 and a half years and then in the last 18 months I, I lost two times a man said to me once, he said, listen, Sid, when your career is no longer going up and it starts to go like sideways, he goes, you, you want to reconsider because you do not want to be caught on the downslope of a career. Um, that's where injuries happen. I was like, man, you know, well, with, with everything else that's going on in my life, I, you know, I just met the woman who'd become, you know, my wife. And I was like, you know what? I'm not fighting for the money. Um, there's easier ways to make money in this world than going in the ring against trained professional, like, you know, men who are trying to like knock your head off. Um, so for me, it was like, you know what, it's just a good opportunity to, to step away. If you're enjoying this trial legends interview with Sid, the jewel Vanderpool, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available. Anytime we got Sid's brother Fitz, the whip Vanderpool, Mark McCoy, Donovan Bailey, the Toronto sixes, Soroya Tinker, and body picks Hal Johnson. 
how they did it, directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. An excellent decision, and you have pivoted to a new career. Let's talk about present day. You are an elite trainer and an entrepreneur. What is SidFit? SidFit, we're a community. We have a facility, but within that facility or facilities now, uh, we have a community. And we say we create a culture of champions. So a community and a culture of champions, whether we're training CEOs, young people, uh, competitive boxers, fitness boxers, people that are just in here, it's a rehab and injury. You know, I just met with a, a young a young man today. I say young man. He's 41. I'm 51. I remember the young man today, right? And, you know, he's he just started his business and he's got 75 employees and he's got, you know, three young kids. And, you know, his goal is to have energy, have confidence and be able to be strong for his kids. To me, that is a world title. Like, I, I don't care whether... People are going to see you hold up a belt. That is a world title to be there for your family, to be there for your business and be there, you know, for yourself. That's a world title. And I want to come alongside anybody who wants to win that world title. And that's what we we promote here, um, a culture of champions. And of course, uh, you know, we have um, competitive boxers. I'm off to Columbia on Wednesday uh, with one of my boxers who's fighting in a Pan-American trials competition. Um, and that's always exciting because I just love being around high performance athletes in that that community. I, I love the pressure of, listen, on this one day, it's all on the line. And are you ready? Do you have the mental strength? Do you have the physical strength? You know, do you have the emotional strength to perform and deliver on that day? I mean, I love that. So uh, I still get to be in that world as well. It's fabulous. You can work your entrepreneurial skills and you still get to whet your appetite for the competitive part of your personality. That's great. Now, let's talk about some fun stuff. You were named Sid after what legendary actor and why? <laughs> yes, the late, great Sidney Poitier. And why was that? So my dad wanted to name me Cassius Clay. And my mom was like, no son of my name is going to be named Cassius. And uh, so they both liked uh, Sidney Poitier. So that was my name, Sidney Poitier Vanderpool. And let's talk nicknames because boxing's got great ones and you got a great one. But before you were the jewel, you were nicknamed Little Archie. Why? Yeah, my dad just watched my style and, uh, you know, he just thought that I boxed like Archie Moore. And um, so the name Little Archie, you know, stuck. And then, you know, the first gym he had outside of our Airport uh, was named Little Archie's Boxing Club, and uh, it was yeah, it was uh, it was great to to have that nickname and to have that as my first moniker. And how'd you end up settling on the Jewel? So after Little Archie, so when I turned pro, I decided that I was going to name myself. So I was like, okay, what's my nickname going to be? Because every great fighter needs to have a nickname of some sort. And uh, I don't know, I was I was a, a somewhat of a wrestling fan. And there was this guy called Sid Justice. It's like Sid Justice. And I broke down the word. I'm like, just ice. So I'm like, hey, Sid, just ice. Because I'm pretty cool and calm in the ring. So my first nickname in boxes, many people don't know, was actually Sid, just ice Vanderpool. And um, I didn't really catch. I had that for quite a while. And then I was in New Orleans. 
And I was probably, I probably had like 18, 18 knockouts at that time. And we're in New Orleans and I went in the ring and I knocked this guy out in like maybe like five or six rounds. And I walk out of the ring and there's this like stereotypical old guy. And just New Orleans, he is like, oh, oh. he's like, man, you, you punch like a mule. I sent the mule all day in your pool. And uh, my my manager at the time, Ray Taylor, we were just joking about it, right? Like, and so he went home and he told his daughter that the story and the joke. And she's like, how about Sid the Jewel? Like, you know, jewels are formed under pressure. It rhymes at Vanderpool. And he came back to say, hey, hey, how about Sid the Jewel? And I was like, love it. Sid the Jewel, Vanderpool. And it stuck. <laughs> Just ice to little Archie to mule to the jewel. And I got a good story for it. And you know what? My wife will still call me the mule, but, you know, you're a mule. <laughs> Was the great Michael Buffer ever the ring announcer for any of your fights, Sid? Yes, 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 yes. I did have Buffer do one of my fights. He, he did my uh, Hopkins fight. And do you remember the walk-up music you used to use when you'd enter the ring? I do. most. So I did get a custom one made uh, later on in my career, a custom one made. But the one I used most was Diana Ross, I'm Coming Out. I don't know. I just like the beat and I'm Coming Out. It was just... I want the world to know like that, that spoke to me, you know, I'm going to let it show. So. Excellent. That's a good choice. As you noted, your boxing idol was the late marvelous Marvin Hagler. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? I never got a chance to meet Marvin Hagler. When I was there with the Pacinellis, he was in Italy making movies, right? He made Indigo or Indio, or he'd make these movies. So he was not around a lot. Um, I got lots of signed autographs because they had lots of autographs of him around. So I got those. And they showed me his mom's house because his mom still lived in Brockton. And she had a gold Mercedes. And many, many times, I would that would be my route. I would make my running route, running by our house and looking at that gold Mercedes in that driveway and just thinking, all right, like just being close to that, like, all right. It can be done, you know, and I would, yeah, I'd run by there and I'd look at the house and look at the gold Mercedes and I'd be like, okay, one day, one day, one day. Well, ironically, uh, Hagler's big nemesis was Thomas Hitman Hearns, who was trained by Manny Stewart, yes. the, god, the godfather of Detroit boxing. And you, of course, were trained by Manny Stewart. What was your experience with Emmanuel Stewart? Emmanuel Stewart, man, like he was just such a, um, a boxing historian and he just understood. He was like a doctor. He understood boxing. And one of the things that um, you know he was really good at was picking up what a fighter needed to do to win their next fight. So he was really good at being, okay, here's your next opponent. Here's what you need to do to win. You know, I remember one time we fought at Shane, yeah, Shane, Shane Stadium in Detroit. So it's on the river. We're on the river. And, uh, cause yeah, cause we were the main event, Lonnie Beasley, we were the main event. And so people were driving their, their yachts up and watching the fight. Uh, cause it's, it's a half covered stadium. And so they would drive their yachts up and they'd be sitting there watching the fight. And, uh, Lonnie Beasley, it's probably my toughest fight, honestly, because Lonnie Beasley was a guy who was at the top, uh, you know, on TV and he'd lost a couple of fights and this was his opportunity to get back to that level. And so I was, I was the champion. So he was coming and was his, he's, he's from Detroit. Um, so it was his opportunity to try and get back to that level. 
And so I just remember it like maybe the seventh round and I went back to the corner and it was a tough, tough fight. Like I could just feel Lonnie's will. Like he did not want to be broken. And uh, Manuel Stewart just looked at me and goes, he goes, sit, sit, forget about boxing. You got to fight this guy. Fight him. All right. Talk to yourself. Talk to yourself. Talk to yourself. And he just kept saying, talk to yourself. Right. And, and uh, so I did. I just forgot about boxing. And uh, I went in there and I was going to impose my will on his will. And his will was strong. And uh, I ended up winning a 12-round unanimous decision. And uh, we go back to the room, the dressing room. And I've got legends in my dressing room. Because where Emmanuel Stewart is, people kind of gather. I've got Tommy Hearns in there. And I've got all these other great fighters from Detroit in my dressing room. And I put my hand, I'll never forget, my, I put my hands in my head and my head's dead. My head hurts. And I'm like, this is a tough way to make a living. That's all I could think. Man, this is a tough way to make a living. <laughs> but not only is it a tough way to make a living, Mike Tyson famously said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Did you ever meet Iron Mike Tyson? I did. I did. I had the opportunity to meet Mike Tyson like five years ago. One of my clients uh, was helping put together an event where there'd be a hundred people that would hang out with Mike Tyson and, you know, hear him speak and take some photos with him. So I was able to get to, to meet Mike and, uh, uh, at that event. And, uh, wow, like the emotional roller course that he went on in, in like 40 minutes, like just from his love of custom auto to his anger about Robin Givens to the elation of his, you know, being the youngest heavyweight champion to, losing his daughter and talking about his son and being humble. Like it was crazy. Like I believe he is diagnosed manic. And I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. Cause it, it tear, like tears to laughing to uh, like, I was like, whoa, that was quite an intense ride. Another intense guy said, and you had a two year run with him was outlandish promoter, Don King. What do you remember about working with Don King? Don King. So, Don's team had kind of pursued me a little bit and in, in, you know, uh, in my earlier years and we never connected. And then, um, I remember I was supposed to call his office to speak with him. So I called the office and his secretary's like, um, uh, who is this? And I said, Sid Vanderpool. She goes, oh, well, sorry. Don is in a closed door meeting, but she goes, hang on a second. I'll see if I can get him. So she goes in and next thing I know, Sid Vanderpool and so first of all, I'm like, oh my gosh, Don's in a closed door meeting and he was talking to me. Same vanity for my Canadian brother. <laughs> he goes, uh, he's look, he says, black man with a white man name. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Don and I, we ended up, you know, coming to a, an agreement and uh, I worked with Don King for, uh, you know, almost two years and honestly never had anything bad happen or or, or negative um we just came to, to to part ways because the way it worked with don king's stable was don would take all the fighters uh the top fighters in a division and you have them all because that's the way he would keep on to keep a hold of the having the champion is he would just have his guys fight each other all right so he would have deep stables and uh at the super middleweight division he had the champion byron mitchell at the time and don would he would take a horse. He would ride that horse for as long as he could. Then once that horse died, he beat it a little bit, went back to life. 
He ride a little bit more, and then he put you out the pasture. Byron Mitchell was the champion, and I was like, man, this I'm I'm ready to go now. I'm ready to go now, and I know it's going to be another three, four years before I get my shot. So my manager, Stan Hoffman, had a good relationship with Don King, and um, we asked to be released. And you could probably count on two hands the amount of people who have been released from Don King without having to give up a child or a finger or a leg. And um, we were able to get released from Don King. And within six months, I was ranked number one on the road. So I signed with another promoter. And um, so it was my time. And, uh, you know, like I said, Don never did me anything wrong. That's it. So many, so many interesting people you met, so many celebrities. I have to ask you, during your fights, did you ever look out in the crowd during one of your fights and see Snoop Dogg or Ben Allen? Or, uh, so one of my, uh, and hopefully he gets to hear this. So when I fought Jeff Lacey at Caesar's Pass Las Vegas, my publicist at the time contacted um, Wayne Gretzky. And was like, hey, you know, we're trying to get a big contingent of Canadians to come out. Uh, you know, and Scott Walker's coming out, and we've got all these other athletes that are coming out. Uh, would you like to come out? And uh, Wayne said, yes. He goes, would it be okay if my daughter sang the national anthem? And my publicist worked it out, and sure enough, we were able to get, you know, his daughter to sing the national anthem. And Wayne Gretzky was there, obviously. I was so excited to meet Wayne Gretzky after the fight. However, because my fight ended at TKO, for precautions, they they wanted to go to the hospital. So I had to go to the hospital after my fight, and I never got to meet Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> so, so there's there's videos with him watching the fight and all this, and I'm like, yeah, but I never got to meet him. He owes you one. You're right. I hope he is listening because uh, he does owe you. Said, who were the Vander Peeps? Yes, the Vander Peeps. I, again, my publicist put together this this group of um, a fan club. Let's call it. They were a fan club, and uh, they would travel and wear Canadian, whether it's a vest or Canadian. We had these great big Canadian hats uh, that they would wear at these events just to rep Canada and uh, you know show support for myself wherever we went. These were uh, Dr. Seuss hats, and apparently Dr. many Seuss. of them, many of them were made by your own mother. Yes, my mom would make these. Yeah, Dr. Seuss hats, and uh, they would stand out. I think Don King really enjoyed them, isn't he? They were like, yeah, Don King would like something like that. It was, it was we're making a statement. Well, if we haven't heard enough interesting people and enough interesting interactions, Sid, you also appeared in a movie with actress Meg Ryan and Omar Epps called Against the Ropes. How was your acting experience? You know what? It uh, it, it came about randomly uh, because I was training in Toronto, uh, I think, at the time. And they were doing this vid, uh, movie. And so I went out and I auditioned for the part as, as a stuntman initially. And um, they liked they liked the way I moved in the ring. And so I got the part. And uh, it, was a, it was a lot harder than I thought because to film like a one-minute piece took like a day. Like for me, it was, it was a whole day and do it over again. Oh, cause we've got to get a different angle, do it again and again and again and again. So it was a lot more work, uh, than I thought it would be, but, uh, getting to meet, uh, Omar Epps, unfortunately we couldn't meet Meg Ryan because, uh, she was getting death threats. I think they said at the time. So, you know, one really, she just came, she just came, did her thing. So I get knocked down in the movie against the ropes. I get knocked down and she comes, she stands over me and looks at me. But that's as close as I got to Meg Ryan. 
Did you get your union card for that, Sid? Are you in the actors' union? Credits. Yes, I got credits. I got credits for that. I did. <laughs> Excellent. And I still get residuals. Hey, <laughs> that is number one. That is absolutely. <laughs> now, Sid, there's so much awareness today of concussions and the damage caused by blows to the head. How was your head today? And how did you deal with a sports career in which the point was for your competitors to try to knock your head off your body? <laughs> yeah. When I was competing, and even now as a coach, my number one, number one thing I want to do is is teach my athletes and for myself, it was defense. How do you avoid getting hit in the head? Like that is key uh, because it'll prolong your career. As a fighter, I mean, if you can have a good defense, then it's going to allow you to also transition into your offense a lot better. Then if you're getting hit, it discombobulates you in this whole thing. So uh, I'm really big on defense uh, as a coach and as a fighter. And I think that's kind of, you know, helped me, um, you know, as, as a coach, especially I, I don't do a lot of hard sparring because again, all those rounds, every round. And my dad would always say, I mean, I'll never forget my dad would always like, listen, you got an egg. And, and uh, if you tap it, you just keep tapping it. Eventually it will break. Right. And that's your head. Don't keep tapping your head. So you just want to, you know, protect that head as much as possible. And that's kind of the rule that I've taken and uh, I would say, I just met you, but you seem to have all your faculties. Uh, health-wise, you're great. You know what? I, I've maintained, uh, you know, my shoulders, my knees, everything. I was pretty diligent about just making sure I was taking care of my body. And uh, yeah, knock on wood, uh, everything seems to be good so far with my brain. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> now, the KW, Kitchener Waterloo, is a mecca of Canadian boxing. You trained at the Waterloo Regional Boxing Academy during its heyday when it produced Lennox Lewis, brothers Chris and Greg Johnson, Donnie Lalonde, and of course, your older brother Fitz. The big man is the one I want to ask you more about. What was your relationship with, like with heavyweight Lennox Lewis? So Lennox was quite a bit older than me and bigger than me. So we like we never sparred or anything like that. But having him around and just watching what he did in the gym was pretty cool. So when I did turn pro, Lennox turned pro initially. His coach was John Davenport. And so when I turned to pro, when I went to Erie, Pennsylvania, my coach was John Davenport. And so Lennox had moved off from John Davenport after I think like he'd fought, da, da, da. he'd probably fought like 15 fights with John Davenport. And then he moved on to a new trainer. Uh, and when he heard that I was with John Davenport, he called me to, uh, to Toronto. You just like, hey, Sid, let, let's connect in Toronto. So I just drove to Toronto and um, he just shared with me a lot of things uh, in the boxing world to watch out for, to be aware of. And um, I just thought that was just great for him to take the time to kind of just kind of help me walk through some of the things and challenges that I'd have coming up. And uh, that was kind of just the relationship that, uh, you know, that I had with him. And one time I remember messaging him uh, in, uh, he was in uh, Miami and we got jumped on a hall because I had a fighter, um, I was getting ready for a fight and I was like, Hey, last can you give me some advice? And he did, he gave me some advice and he helped me out that way. So that's just the kind of guy Lennox was. Well, another excellent guy is the past podcast guest of this podcast. Shout out to your brother, Fitz the Whip, who won six boxing titles over three different weight categories. May I ask how Fitz is doing and any updates on the middle Vanderpool boy? Fitz is doing great. Uh, he's staying busy. Uh, you know, he's in the boxing world himself and, uh, you know, it's in, he's in pretty good shape. I'm hoping he's not going to make a comeback, but I'm watching him like, man, like, why are you keeping in that good a shape? Like, 
You don't think you could jump back in and do some rounds tomorrow, but I don't tell him that. All right. So he just cut that part. I don't want him to know he's in that good of shape. But yeah, no, he's in great shape and, uh, you know, keep him busy. And so that's always good to see that once you retire from a sport, that you have something else to transition into. One of my fighters, a two time Olympian, Mandy Bougeol, just retired from boxing. And she, again, this is what she knew for so much of her life and just helping her transition into the next part of her life is what what good coaches do. I mean, we, we want to make sure that, because it can be a, a big void uh, to not have the facts. You know, that level of discipline still required of you, right? And what do you do? And, uh, you know, so it's good to be able to understand that because I've walked it. Well, certainly you're living proof of being able to make this strong transition from one career to the next. What is next for SitFit and for your dual careers as a boxing coach and a businessman? Yeah, what's next is uh, you know we're in the in in the process right now of of, of doing a move moving our our flagship and we're trying to keep it in downtown KW and we're looking at a center that houses more than just boxing so housing other martial arts uh, jujitsu uh, wrestling you know Muay Thai getting all the top athletes together in combat sport under one roof. Um, I just think would be so amazing. And so that's kind of what we're looking at, uh, growing that community as a whole and what it provides to to just people who are interested in the fitness and the art of it. The discipline in all of these sports is amazing and the confidence it gives you. So being able to have a center that encompasses all of that is something that we're looking to put together and, uh, you know, make happen in the next, uh, in the next few months, actually. Excellent. Big plans. You're always working harder on the next project. Yeah, you know, and uh, I think it was Van Gogh that said, you know, dream no small dreams, for they have no power to move the hearts of men. And uh, I truly believe that. People want to be associated. They want to get on board with big dreams and big visions. And while we're here, let's make it happen. I love it. He's a fighter and a philosopher. I love it. As we close up, Sid, and I greatly appreciate your time, I do want to know where we can best follow you on social media or the internet. You can find me at, at Boxing by Sid on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook as well and LinkedIn. So, yeah, just hit me up, follow me. And, uh, again, I'm always, uh, especially over these next couple of weeks when I'm, I'm going to be in Colombia, uh, you can you can see, you know, see what I'm doing, see what I'm up to and uh, get inside my life for a little bit. It's going to be an exciting time, and I love sharing that with people as well. Excellent. Well, I got to tell you, I'm two for two successful with the Vanderpool boys. I had a great time with you as well. I appreciate you taking the time to share your stories and I want to wish you a continued success going forward, Sid. Andrew, thank you so much for having me on and continued success with uh, the Toronto Legends podcast. Thank you very much. That means a lot. And to the listeners, on behalf of Sid, the Jewel Vanderpool, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.
I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.